Hey everyone, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even the complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. Well, we knew Democrats would hang on to control of the Senate, but their margin has just grown a little bit. Raphael Warnock beat Herschel Walker in Georgia's runoff this week. So Warnock will keep his seat and give Democrats a 51 to 49 edge. Now, this isn't a huge deal in itself, but this result did bolster the narrative that Trump may be losing influence in the GOP since Herschel Walker is yet another of his handpicked candidates to go down. Warnock, in his victory speech, definitely saw a lot of deeper meaning. I am Georgia. an example and an iteration of its history, of its pain and its promise, of the brutality and the possibility. But because this is America, because we always have a path to make our country greater against, against unspeakable odds, here we stand together. Thank you, Georgia. All right, I want to start with a person who has followed this race and Georgia politics probably more closely than anyone in the world, Stephen Fowler, who covers politics for Georgia Public Broadcasting. Hey, Stephen. Hey, David. I am Georgia, hearing those words from from Warnock. What, what do you take that to mean? I mean, it really is a reflection of the evolution of Georgia's politics, its economy, its demographics over the last really two decades I mean, Georgia was once a very reliably red state dominated by white rural voters and governed by more moderate suburban white Republicans and rural Republicans. That is now the melting pot of the future and present of American politics. Um, Warnock is the first ever black senator from Georgia elected to a full term after he was the first ever black Georgian elected to the Senate after winning a 2021 runoff. And he is a representative of the kind of diversification of Atlanta and Georgia, a more moderate, who knows how to speak progressively and appeal to people across the political spectrum. And, you know, it was not that close of a victory in some ways because, you know, Herschel Walker did narrowly win in the general and was narrowly behind him in the runoff, but won convincingly enough to keep Georgia on the map for the next two years. I guess one of the big questions of this race is how much we can really draw in terms of, as you're saying, here's a candidate who figured out how to appeal to progressives, also to moderates, but he was also up against a candidate who was deeply troubled through this race in many ways, Herschel Walker. I mean, a football legend endorsed by Trump, um, his campaign riddled with scandal controversy. He once said himself, quote, that he's not that smart. Um, he's going up against an educated reverend, one of the most skilled communicators in, in Congress. I mean, di didn't this come down more to deciding between two people? Well, yeah. I mean, in the runoff, which was just a four-week marathon sprint to the finish, Warnock painted his campaign as about competence and character. He didn't talk about Democrats. He didn't talk about Democratic policies or Joe Biden or different agenda things. He set itself up plainly as, who do you want to represent the state of Georgia for the next six years? And he really uh, held off from criticizing 
his opponent that much during the general election, but during the runoff really just unloaded on it because Herschel Walker from the start was mired in controversy. Before he even got into the race, there was reporting done that he maybe wasn't telling the whole truth about his past and overstated his resume and inflated his business acumen and lied about graduating from college and other easily disprovable things. And that cloud really just stayed over Walker the entire election as reporting came out from the Daily Beast about children that he secretly had and kept from people when he was railing against absentee fathers and women that he pressured into having abortions, allegedly, despite opposing all abortion rights. And so it, you know, the biggest opponent of Herschel Walker was Herschel Walker, and Warnock really took advantage of that to um, not have to do a whole lot about uh, tiptoeing around Joe Biden and Democrats' unpopularity. You shared a story on social media this week after the race from BuzzFeed uh, about Herschel Walker's son, Christian, and his role in his dad's defeat. Can, can you remind us about that and, and why you thought it was was important? Yeah, so throughout this race, there's been these stories about Herschel Walker that you know, some people were saying, this will be the one, this will be the one, this will be the one. But really, I think an inflection point in the race is after the news of these abortions came out and after the news of the children came out and things like that, Herschel's son, Christian, who up until this campaign was really the only child of Herschel Walker that people knew about, uh, went on a social media tirade against his father. Christian is a popular right-wing social media figure, uh, does viral videos, and is very outspoken about a lot of things. And he unloaded on his father, saying, you know, we told you not to get into the race, you got into the race. And he, he really, what set Christian off was the fact that he said that Walker was lying about his past and lying about alleged domestic violence and other things like that. And that really pulled back the veil on, I think, a lot of people on the right's uh, willingness to support Herschel Walker just because he was a Republican, just because he could be a majority-making senator. And really, I think the story for Republicans throughout this campaign was all of these different revelations were providing off-ramps for ways to not support Herschel Walker or not support him vocally without running the risk of running afoul of the Republican base. And Christian Walker, who by no means is a moderate, um, saying his father was a liar and not equipped and a violent person, I think gave permission to a lot of people to fade into the woodwork, maybe support Herschel a little bit less and explore other options. And then on the Democratic side, that was the opportunity for Warnock to say, hey, I'm what's best for Georgia. I'm helping Georgians. I happen to be a Democrat and I happen to have some Democratic policies but it's me or this guy. And so I think that was really a key turning point out of many in this campaign. Well, I, I actually want to play the voice of a voter that uh, you, you sent us this tape um, who, who really speaks to exactly what you're saying, that this is the voice of Republican Blake Breeze from Atlanta talking about why he ended up voting for the Democrat Warnock. You got to vote for the best candidate. And I mean, sometimes that doesn't mean hold your nose and just vote on party lines. I think you have to vote for who best is going to represent your interests in the Senate or who's going to be the best representative for the state. So I was holding out judgment. I, I, I was already leaning Warnock, but then I saw the debate and I just, I don't feel Herschel Walker, the way he answered some of those questions. I just don't think, I don't think maybe he's the best man for the job to put it, to put it lightly. 
So let me ask you this, Stephen. I mean, if, if we hear someone like that who clearly just didn't feel like Walker was up to the task, let's say, you know, and someone who voted for other Republicans, what convinces you that Warnock did something right that Democrats can model in terms of, you know, finding the right balanced message, for example, between appealing to, to progressives and appealing to moderates? Like, isn't this the kind of voter, Blake Breeze, who we just heard from, who if there's a different candidate who's not Herschel Walker with all these problems, he's going to go right back into the GOP camp in a race like this? So, David, the, the key number is one in 10. And that's how many people voted for Governor Brian Kemp, the incumbent Republican, but didn't vote for Herschel Walker. They either left it blank in the general election, supported the Libertarian as a protest vote, or vote, voted for Raphael Warnock. And looking again in the runoff, you see underperformance. You know, there are deep red Republican counties in Georgia, and especially in Atlanta's exurbs, where Brian Kemp would get 72, 74% of the vote, and Herschel Walker was in the high 60s. And it's a sign of Republicans not showing up to vote. You know, they're not holding their nose. They're just not even participating. Or some of these Kemp-Warnock crossover voters of people who like conservative policies. They like the way Brian Kemp and Republicans in Georgia have handled economic issues, but they absolutely could not vote for somebody just because they're a Republican. And so this Senate race and other Senate races throughout the country, like we saw in Arizona and Pennsylvania, really lays out a roadmap for both parties to figure out what they're doing moving forward and that candidate quality really does matter. And even in a time where we had people vote for Republicans at the congressional level and the state level, they sent the message that they would much rather have a Democrat that they could trust and that displayed a bare minimum of competency than somebody on their own team just because they have an R beside their name. Stephen, I want to bring in our panel. We, we have Mo Lathy back on the left, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, was communications director for the DNC and advised Hillary Clinton. And on the right, we have Sarah Isger back. She's staff writer at The Dispatch, uh, a lawyer and uh, was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Um, Mo, let me just ask you about this, this roadmap and this, this question that Stephen and I are talking about. Was this just about Warnock facing a bad candidate, or do you see lessons here in terms of anything from his messaging, in terms of how he handled issues that shows that he has the capability to bring together both progressives and more moderate voters in a state like Georgia? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked the question that way, David, because like <laughs> we've heard it ad nauseum this election cycle, candidates matter. Yeah. Right? Like candidates matter has become the new, it's all about turnout in terms right. of cliches. Yeah. But, and soul searching, that's can, the other cliche we're, here, we're hearing right, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But candidates do matter. The problem is when people have been talking about that all cycle, they tend to be talking about bad candidates and talking about all of these Trump endorsed out of the mainstream election denying not fit for prime time candidates that were nominated by Republicans around the country. The problem is that that doesn't give enough credit to good candidates. And there were a number of good candidates that ran the cycle. Raphael Warnock was a good candidate. He worked hard. He fought hard. He had a message that was able to um, build the kind of coalition you need to build to win statewide in an emerging purple state, which is what Georgia is. It, you know, people are declaring it, you know, uh, purple. It is 
I think, a reddish shade of purple, but it is purple now. And, and he was able to build together that coalition that we've seen successful candidates in Virginia build. A, a you know the last southern state that really sort of went from deep red to purple. Uh, he's able to stitch together a coalition that energizes progressives while not scaring off moderates. He was able to build a coalition that uh, appealed across some racial lines. He was able to stitch together the urban-suburban coalition that is critical for any Democrat to win statewide. And he did it with a message that was centered around results. He did it around a message that was centered around working across the aisle. He did it while still uh, holding up key Democratic ideals. And he was able to draw a contrast with an opponent who was the antithesis to all of those things. But given the numbers that Stephen brought up, would, would he have beaten a candidate who was not scandal-ridden and didn't deal with all the nasty stuff that Herschel Walker, that came up in Herschel Walker's campaign? Even if he was great, I mean, would he have won given the numbers that Stephen's talking about? And I mean, he did last time, right? I mean, he defeated someone who was also probably not ready for prime time. But still was able to win, but wasn't nearly as scandal-plagued, or at least the same kind, uh, as as Herschel Walker was. Um, look, I'm not trying to say that, uh, that Herschel Walker wasn't a terrible candidate. He was. But Raphael Warnock ran the kind of campaign that Democrats can study. It was the same kind of campaign that you saw people like Mark Warner and Tim Kaine run in Virginia when they were helping to turn that state purple. Um, He ran that kind of campaign. And Democrats, I think, can learn a lot of lessons. It's not going to work for all of them in every state every time. But the roadmap is there. And he was a fantastic candidate to execute on it. Sarah, is the roadmap there for Democrats? Is is Warnock a a roadmap for success? Um, Or do you see this as if it hadn't been Herschel Walker that, that Republicans might have had a chance in this race? Let me make the case for and against what Mo just said, because okay. I think the case for what Mo just said is pretty weak, but it's there. Um, and that is <laughs> oh. Joe Biden won Georgia. Uh, and you can't get around that. I think there, you can say candidates matter there too, by the way. But um, so in that sense, Georgia is a purplish state. It was a razor thin margin in Georgia, as we know. Um, but Joe Biden won it. I think, though, when you look at Raphael Warnock's wins, first of all, the 2021 win when Donald Trump told his supporters to stay home because the election was rigged. Okay, (laughs) And then you look this time with Herschel Walker. Uh, To me, it's like saying Doug Jones is a great candidate in Alabama. Remember, he won that special election in 2017 against Roy Moore. Right. We don't say Alabama is a purple state and we don't say that uh, Doug Jones, you know, stitched together this amazing constituency. What we say is Roy Moore lost that race because Republican primary voters are dumb um, to possibly think someone like that could win in a general election. And there's a better argument for Doug Jones, I mean, he overcame a double-digit deficit for Democrats in that state. And you look at the other Georgia results that we saw in November. Governor, plus eight Republican. Lieutenant Governor, plus five Republican. Secretary of State, plus nine Republican. Attorney General, plus five Republican. 
That doesn't sound like a purple state to me. That sounds to me like the case for the candidates matter thesis seemed a lot more important. And while I will say then in the specifics of Raphael Warnock's candidacy and campaign, they did some things really well. First of all, Raphael Warnock is a fundraising machine and Democrats absolutely should be looking about what he was able to do nationally to bring in just the sheer tonnage of money that he did. But in terms of his candidacy, I'm hearing people talk about this guy run for president Uh, I think you're a little premature on that. Raphael Warnock had a lot of his own baggage heading into this campaign. It just didn't matter because the baggage was so similar and dwarfed by Herschel Walker's baggage. All right, we're going to have to break there for a moment, but we'll come back with the whole crew to talk about uh, more of this and where the two parties go from here. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. We're back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, the co-founder of Fearless Media. We have Moa Lathy on the left, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, and Sarah Isker on the right. She's a lawyer, staff writer at The Dispatch, former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. And we have our special guest, Stephen Fowler, who covers politics for Georgia Public Broadcasting. Sarah, let me pick up where where we left off there. What What lessons should the Republican Party take from this race? I mean, is it as simple as if we just pick a better candidate, maybe one who's not chosen by Donald Trump, we can win Senate races like this? Or or as you were saying, like, you know, Warnock showed prowess in fundraising and, and you said that Mo had some good points to make about, you know, being the right kind of candidate. So what, what do Republicans take from this? I actually think it is a little bit more complicated than you know, do better Republicans in the nomination process. You look nationally at Chris Sununu, Doug Ducey, Mike DeWine, Brian Kemp. These are all governors that just crushed it. And they are old school Republicans. They're sort of of the era of that three-legged stool of conservatism that Republicans used to run on in sort of that Romney and pre-Romney era up until Donald Trump. But we're not going back back to that era of Republican politics either. Um, And so while you can look at, you know, the Georgia race informs what we know about the November elections, and that informs what we learned in 2020 and 2018, there is absolutely a through line that Donald Trump's preferred candidates win primaries with Republican voters and lose in general elections. And I mean, to me, it's a pretty obvious, you know, sports metaphor, whatever else you want to use, uh, you can get to the 10-yard line all you want. If you can't get it over into the end zone, you don't win the game, no matter how many times. You keep kicking uh, field goals. You can't do it. You can't get the job down the red zone. I love I love the football analogy. <laughs> um, so there is absolutely something to that that Republicans, I think, are waking up to each time this happens because the excuses start falling away. But what does waking up look like? I mean, at some point, is someone going to go to Donald Trump and say, like, yeah, it's done. No. Like, no, no more. Obviously not. And I think that you're going to see this in the 2024 Republican primary because let's assume for a second, and it's a big assumption, let's assume that Ron DeSantis runs and wins that Republican primary. Republicans still have a problem in the general election because you think Donald Trump's going to hold up Ron DeSantis's hand on the stage and say, this is the future. Let's all get behind this guy. That's not going to happen. 
Um, And so then you have a question, can the Republican Party win with Donald Trump running against it rather than with it? And that's what Republicans are so scared about. That's why you see them not saying too much after the Kanye dinner or sort of coming back around after January 6th or whatever the scandal du jour is, you know, Donald Trump saying we should get rid of the Constitution. Great plan, dude. Um, it, because they're afraid of that problem. But that's where I think they learned something in Georgia. Maybe, maybe. I don't want to promise anything. But, but maybe. Brian Kemp and Brad Raffsenberger won their races handily. And they weren't just, you know, Republicans who ignored the Trump question. Donald Trump ran against them hard. They won their primaries, and then they crushed it in the general election. That, to me, looks like the model for Republicans heading into 2024. We'll just see how many are brave enough to have learned that lesson. Stephen, how did you hear this playing out on the ground in Georgia as you listened to voters who supported President Trump? I mean, are they— are they open to soul searching? Are they open to saying like, okay, like I see Herschel Walker is not a good candidate. Trump put him there. You know, this, maybe I'm rethinking or does, or, or is his, is Trump's base still strong as ever? Well, I mean, Trump's base might be as strong as ever, but the size of that base is certainly nowhere near where it once was. I think uh, Republicans in Georgia have been used to winning for the last couple decades and the losses that they have suffered and the setbacks they've suffered have primarily been influenced by Trump. I mean, obviously, there's demographic change in Georgia. There's more people that tend to support Democrats that have moved into the state and vote in these statewide elections. But I know, particularly among the more suburban Republican crowd in the state, uh, Trump has long worn out his welcome, especially after the 2020 election, where Georgia was one of the centerpieces in his efforts to overturn his defeat and subvert the election results. And so there's definitely an appetite for people uh, to support somebody other than Donald Trump. And of course, you know, in the aftermath of the election, Brian Kemp is being heralded by many people as the new potential Trump challenger du jour because he did stand up to Trump or rather um, not push back and not manage to anger enough people where he didn't win. I mean, look, Brian Kemp won his primary in a blowout margin after people had written multiple, multiple obituaries for his campaign because of Trump backing David Perdue, Trump is the kingmaker, all of this other sort of stuff. But on the ground, there was never really a doubt, at least among my watching Brian Kemp, that he was going to do anything other than crush it because Brian Kemp really represents more of the future of the Republican Party in places like Georgia than Donald Trump. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who represents the base of Trump and is, in some cases, trying to take up the mantle of Trumpism and, you know, wreak havoc upon Washington with that base. Most Republicans in Georgia also don't care about Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're embarrassed by her. They really wish somebody else would primary her and she would be gone out of Georgia's political sphere. But Brian Kemp, on the other hand, is more of what Georgia Republicans are actually like and what they actually think about and is more reflective of a more acceptable statewide view. I mean, Georgia didn't get to be the economically thriving state that it is by chasing hard right cultural issues. 
Well, can I ask you um, on on the other side, Stephen? I mean, one of the one of the challenges that Democrats are facing is to reassure voters who are afraid of you know a so called radical liberal agenda. What did you hear in terms of those fears, and and are you know moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats who have those fears? Are they open to being reassured by candidates like Warnock or, you know, is that going to be a real challenge for Democrats as they, you know, continue trying to make Georgia purple and not just a a slightly less red shade? I mean, Warnock was really the epitome of that messaging. You look at some of his most popular ads that he ran and uh, one of them, many of them actually touted his work across the aisle with Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, you know, on an interstate running through the southern part of the country. His whole shtick with that was saying, you know, I'll work with whoever as long as it helps Georgians. And then when you see Ted Cruz sitting up on stage with Herschel Walker at a Fox News TV appearance and people are like, hmm, he can actually work with people across the aisle even if those people are kind of nutty. And it really defanged a lot of the attacks. I mean, when Warnock first ran in the 2021 runoffs, Kelly Leffler, then appointed senator, just repeatedly hammered him as a radical liberal Raphael Warnock. And then you see ads of Warnock in a puffer vest walking a beagle down a street, and people are like, really? And so, (laughs) you know, it's a lot of it is, I mean, the effectiveness of money and advertising and crafting this image, but... By and large, I mean, even Republicans that would much rather have a Republican senator say, Raphael Warnock seems like a good guy, seems like a nice guy. He works together with people. And it and it I mean, and it works. I mean, it comes down to candidate quality, but like the pastor of a historic civil rights steep church in Atlanta talking about working with Tommy Tuberville to better the lives of people in the South is a whole lot more believable and less scary than uh, you know, these outside Republican groups saying, you know, Raphael Warnock is going to turn us into a socialist communist country. It's, you know, it's what's more believable. Mo, you're, um, you're a member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee, and, and you've been having meetings recently, which I'm sure is not just about voting. I'm sure you all talk about stuff in the party. Like what are Democrats <laughs> doing soul searching right now when it comes to some of the stuff that Stephen's talking about? Like, you know, should we run candidates who will talk about being able to work with people like Ted Cruz? Should we run more progressive candidates? Like, what's the, what's the feeling in the party right now at this moment? I think the feeling in the party right now is pretty good. Um, again, this was supposed to be a red wave election. And so, I, 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 and at the end of it, Democrats ended up with more senators than they had before, with more governors than they had before, and with more uh, Democratic-controlled state legislative chambers than they had before. So I don't think there's the same kind of urgency in sort of uh, in in reflecting on who we are um, that there probably is going on in the Republican Party right now. I think while a lot of the spotlight was on the flaws of the Republican candidates, Democrats in a lot of these places found the right balance between distancing themselves from from D.C. when they needed to it, it is that age-old political situation where people may not like the individual or they may say they disapprove of the individual, but they actually kind of like their agenda. And there, and there were huge parts of the Biden agenda that were incredibly popular, and that those were the ads that those candidates ran on. So I think the big lesson a lot of Democrats are is like, let's stop like 
being bedwetters like we are ahead of every election cycle. When we have a story to tell, go out there and tell it. And maybe that can keep us in the game. What we saw is that this time it kept us in the game. I want to ask you about one one big change that uh, the the DNC did vote on, which is shaking up the order of uh, the primary calendar. Iowa is no longer going to be up mm-hmm. first in primary voting. New Hampshire's no longer going to mm-hmm. be up first or second. It's South Carolina. And uh, I know committee member Donna Brazil um, spoke about this really emotionally about the party showing that that it's willing to fight for black voters. Um, did, did you support that? And, and tell me the significance of this for you. Yeah, look, I got placed on the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee about a year ago. And one of my big priorities was to shake up the calendar. Um, and, and it wasn't just because of what happened in Iowa in 2020, though. I think that gave a lot of other committee members sort of the permission they needed. Which was a complete mess with delayed results, and it was pretty awful. It really was. But there was already some, for a couple of cycles now, there was this growing feeling that the, that the early primary calendars didn't reflect the party. And so at the beginning of the year, we passed a framework that said we wanted the early primary window to be more diverse, to reflect the diversity of the Democratic Party, to be more inclusive, which, you know, frankly was code for let's get rid of caucuses in the early process and move to just primary states because more people participate in primaries than than in caucuses. That's just a fact. And not everyone can make it to caucuses if they have other things That's going right. on, jobs at night, I mean, all that stuff, yeah. That's right. That we wanted the early window to instill confidence in the electoral process, again, looking at you, Iowa. And fourth, and this was one I was very, I felt very strongly about, that we wanted to get more battleground states into the early window as possible. Because before, it was 50% of, of the early states were battleground states, but the other 50 weren't. And so that was what guided us. And so we put South Carolina as first which uh, certainly brings more diverse voices into the process early. We keep New Hampshire in its traditional second in the nation spot, but they got to share that date with Nevada, which sends a strong message there, I think, about um, all of the different types of communities that we want to reach out to. And then we bring two new states into the process, Georgia and Michigan. Both big battleground states, both diverse, both with huge urban, rural, suburban uh, coalitions. Um, Michigan brings in a huge uh, labor population. Uh, So it's a process and a calendar that really reflects everything that we said we wanted to say as a party. And then there's one last thing, because this is something I know a lot of people are talking about. Who does this benefit in a post-Biden world? Doesn't matter, because what we also said was we're going to do this every single cycle. But doesn't it benefit President Biden in this cycle? Yes. Because it makes him less vulnerable, and I mean, it it states that he'll do well and get off to the races? He's an incumbent president running for re-election with no signs that anyone's going to challenge him. So sure, yeah, this helps him, but he probably didn't necessarily need that help anyway. Sarah, what what did you make of this change, and and, and what do you see the motivations? So real quick, I just, I have to say that the— the Beagle ad that Stephen mentioned <laughs> around Raphael Warnock the is maybe best, the, yeah. the best metaphor for the Warnock campaign. It was a brilliant ad. It absolutely created a permission structure for Republicans who voted for a Republican in some of those other statewide races to either not vote for Walker and stay out of it or vote for Warnock. And at the end of the day, Alvin the Beagle wasn't Warnock's puppy. He doesn't have a dog. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, there's a fact. Okay. Right? Like, isn't this the, a great metaphor for our politics in 2022? Just sure. But it's advertising. <laughs> anyway, I think everything the Democrats have done with their primary calendar is genius, long overdue, um, and nearly flawlessly executed. You know, I think that uh, – if you were creating a primary calendar in a vacuum using only data and sort of the smartest operative minds in the country, I think it would look maybe identical to the one that the Democrats came up with. And I find that interesting because so often you have to make these compromises because so-and-so is a super powerful person from wherever. And But at the end of the day, there were plenty of great data-based arguments to move South Carolina to the front of the line. Um, you know, if you wanted to make it a pure battleground argument. Of course, there were some other states that you'd probably want to have in that mix. South Carolina is not really a battleground state, obviously. Uh, Georgia, North Carolina, but not all those states, of course, wanted to do this because right. this is kind of a huge pain. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not something Yeah, we had 20 wants. states apply, but that means there were a bunch of others that didn't. Yeah. <laughs> right, so. right. Um, so, they could be forgiven for picking South Carolina or over Georgia and North Carolina, neither of which I think applied, right, Mo? Well, no, Georgia applied, and Georgia is in the early window. It's now number four but it's not out first. of five. Not first. So right. fine. It's I probably would have put Georgia first, but whatever. Uh, you know, I think you can make arguments either way on that. Um, I think that there's very different incentives and structures on the Democratic side than the Republican side. I'll be curious how Republicans respond to this and whether they look at their own calendar. Certainly, Iowa just doesn't really have a place at the beginning anymore. Now, the reasons for Republicans moving it would be very different than the reason Democrats moved it. It's a very red state. So if you want to get the vibes of Republican voters, Iowa still looks pretty good for that. But for all the reasons that Mo talked about and you with the caucus problems and yeah. frankly, the Iowa caucus problems, it's leading to some pretty distorted results on the Republican side as well. We uh, will have to stop there. Uh, Stephen Fowler uh, from Georgia Public Broadcasting. It is always great to talk politics with you. I'm a big fan. And uh, thanks for being here. Anytime. And uh, Sarah Moe and I will be back uh, to talk about WNBA star Brittany Griner, who is finally free. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. On the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch. And on the left, Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Brittany Griner is free. The WNBA basketball star was being held in a Russian penal colony after she was convicted for carrying cannabis cartridges in her luggage and sentenced to nine years in that penal colony for that. The conditions in that place were Awful. Now she's free. President Biden announced her release, appearing with Griner's wife. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. 
So this happened as part of a prisoner swap between the two countries, which harkens back to the Cold War, of course. Uh, Greiner was released in exchange for the United States releasing convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, who was nicknamed the Merchant of Death. The president did note that he was unable to secure the release of Paul Whelan, another American who's being held in Russia, convicted wrongly on espionage charges. But President Biden said he is not giving up. Obviously, enormous relief for Brittany and and her family. We know the Biden administration had been working on this for a while now. Mo, was this a no-brainer once she was detained and sentenced? Or or do you think there have been some hard conversations within the White House about the the potential risks and and what to do here? Oh, I'm sure anytime you're working on something like this, there are hard conversations. But there's no way to see this as anything but a good day because an American is coming home. An American who was wrongfully detained is coming home. I wish you weren't coming home alone. Right, Paul Whelan has been there for years and deserves to come home as well. But as the president said when he made the announcement that this wasn't a choice between which American to bring home, when we had an opportunity to bring someone home, we bring them home. Um, And so... And I thought it was very moving when her wife was speaking at the podium that she spent as much time talking about keeping the commitment to bringing Paul Whelan home uh, as uh, as she did celebrating the return of Brittany. So, I, yes, I think this was something the administration has been working on, the White House has been working on. I'm glad they got it done. Uh, she deserves to come home, but the work's not done. And we still have more Americans detained wrongfully overseas that we've got to bring home. Sarah, was this clear cut that the right thing to do by the the Biden administration? Obviously, I want to start by saying that it is wonderful that Brittany Griner is on her way home and just a, a great day for her and her family. And I'm so glad that she'll be back here for Christmas, as I'm sure all of um, all of her family is. Uh, and all Americans should be happy about that specific part of this. This was in some ways a no-win situation for the Biden administration. Once Russia offered that deal, it was going to become public at some point. It was going to leak. If they rejected the deal, people were going to know that they left Brittany Griner in Russia um, when they didn't have to. If they accepted the deal, there was going to be criticism about what they weren't able to get done for Paul Whelan, a former Marine who'd served this country and is still sitting over there four years later, who's not going to see his family for Christmas. Um, But maybe even more than that, because I don't doubt, you know, we understand from reporting that Russia was like, look, cannabis is one thing, espionage is another. Paul Whelan is off the negotiation table. Don't even mention his name. So there wasn't a, as, as the president said, this wasn't a who do you want more situation. I absolutely believe that. Nevertheless, that's what a negotiation is. Um, And in this case, we traded someone who had been convicted of conspiring to kill Americans. I am all for bringing every single American home we can, anytime we can, but you do have to think hard about that. Not only because that guy's now out running around and can conspire to kill more Americans. I mean, that merchant of death um, tagline wasn't a joke but also because it sets up really bad incentives for future bad actors. If you get an American, you get one of your bad actors back. Think to the Bo Bergdahl exchange that the Obama administration made. 
I forget whether that was four or six uh, senior Taliban officials that we traded for Bo Bergdahl. I think the Obama administration thought that would be a huge political win. There, of course, was the quote in uh, Rolling Stone at the time from a senior Obama administration official who said he thought this would win the election for them. And politically, Americans actually didn't want to trade you know, senior Taliban leaders because they understood intuitively that what that meant was that it was um, free game. If you could get an American, then you would get six of your guys back, which puts all Americans at risk um, when they're in these places. I I, want to bring up some of the, uh, another deep question about this. I mean, one one issue that Griner's case brought up was, was pay inequity in professional sports in the United States. I mean, NBA stars don't have to go to places like Russia in the offseason to make big money. Um, but it's a huge draw for stars in the WNBA who can get big paydays there, salaries of north of a million dollars, which is a lot compared to what they make professionally playing in the United States. I mean, Griner was making about $200,000 a year playing for the Phoenix Mercury. And I just think about what star athletes in the NBA and other sports are able to make in the United States. I mean, could do you think her case should change the conversation around that? I have pretty interesting feelings on questions about this because we can talk about pay equity in the private sector and how women doing the same job should, of course, be paid the same as men doing the same job when we're talking about um, a secretary or a nurse or a lawyer, whatever that may be. It's pretty different when we're talking about a commercial enterprise like this, though, where the audience isn't there. That's why the conversation between the men and women's soccer team got really interesting because the women's team was actually bringing in um, arguably more revenue They're a bigger draw, more successful, bigger draw, and more revenue. Exactly. But they had negotiated their contract as well. So I was like, well, if you wanted to have basically a lower risk contract that wasn't as win-based, then yep, you get a smaller win bonus because you're getting, you know, whatever. So that was legally really interesting to me. This doesn't have that interest. The WNBA is not anywhere close to the commercial success that the NBA is. The WNBA can't pay women as much. They don't have the money to do it. Mo? I mean, it's a chicken and egg argument to some extent. I mean, I'm not unsympathetic to that point. But at the same time, you know, when uh, they're not getting uh, a lot of the same commercial success because they don't get any attention. They don't get as much attention as men's sports do. And that is historically true. Um, that's true across multiple okay, sports. Okay, but Mo, how many WNBA games have you been to? Well, I take my daughter, actually, because it, she loves to see it. And it's exciting for her to see WNBA players. I take her to uh, both uh, as many Georgetown women's basketball team games as I, as I do uh, men's basketball team games because she gets super excited to see it. Um, Oh, that's but, like the most heartwarming picture. I'm actually really glad I asked that question. <laughs> I am too. I, I'm glad you prov- I'm glad you provoked Mo there to yeah, answer exactly. a question. Such a beautiful, that was a wonderful. A beautiful way. I love that image. Answer, yeah. yeah. I mean, but it, but we as a society don't do that, right? As a society, don't do that. And so these women's athletes who are working just as hard, who uh, and in many cases do better than their men than their male counterparts, don't get attention until they can prove that they are doing better. And people start noticing that they're doing better. And that's why women's soccer was able to become a lot more successful. And so we are, you know, which comes first? I mean, it's it's, it's sort of an age-old question. But 
There is no question that women athletes are not treated the same as men athletes, that we as a society don't pay them as much attention until, um, uh, until we do. And as a result, women athletes have to be scrappier and figure out other ways. And that's what Brittany Griner was doing. And we saw how that turned out. Do you either of you think this this changes the dynamic when it comes to the United States, Russia, and, and the war in Ukraine? I mean, I, I sort of hope, you know, thinking about the Whalen family, that that Putin is kind of saying, okay, now I'm going to show that I'm I'm showing uh, openness to negotiations, and and maybe you know, we'll, we'll I'll be open to sending him home too if I get something I want, and hopefully the thing that he wants would not be disastrous for Ukraine or the world, but. I don't know. No way. I think Putin sees this as a huge victory. The Biden administration backing down. We released a hardened, murdering criminal for someone who was caught with cannabis. That wasn't a one-to-one exchange. Brittany Griner's famous, and that's what they had as leverage over the Biden administration. Um, you know, there was the most gracious uh, statement from the Whalen family. Do you mind if I read it, actually? Go for it. There is no greater success than for a wrongful detainee to be freed and for them to go home. The Biden administration made the right decision to bring Ms. Greiner home and to make the deal that was possible rather than waiting for one that wasn't going to. But, um, and I, I just think that's such a beautiful sentiment from that yeah. family who's so disappointed right now. And scared. CNN was able to talk to Paul Whelan. Um, And he said, I am greatly disappointed that more has not been done to secure my release, especially as the four-year anniversary of my arrest is coming up. I was arrested for a crime that never occurred. I don't understand why I'm still sitting here. And it's hard to imagine. I mean, truly, just take a moment to try to imagine um, the conditions that he's in right now. I I don't think any of us can can imagine what that's like. I mean, No, we can't really. And I don't see why Vladimir Putin would come anywhere close to the negotiating table on that, given what he just got. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. We've reached the time uh, again for our famed left, right, and center rants and raves featuring pet peeves and projects from across the political spectrum. Uh, Sarah Isgard, what's on your mind today? I'm just going to give a little rave to a book I just finished. John Green's The Anthropocene Review. This is the guy who wrote The Fault in Our Stars for people who kind of like young adult movies or Mm -hmm. books. (laughs) Um, But anyway, each chapter, he just gives a one to five star rating to something about being human. Uh, So, you know, scratch and sniff stickers, diet Dr. Pepper, velociraptors, Canadian geese, Piggly Wigglies, the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Um, It's a fun book to read. There's some autobiographical parts. But- There's also a lot of seriousness to finding joy, not in just the good things around our lives, but finding joy in life itself, even in the bad things and paying attention to them and looking around and looking at that sunset and being without any words at all. Sunset, by the way, got five stars. Oh, wow. I love that. Thank you for that. I'm going to pick up that book. Mo? Uh, I'm going to be a curmudgeon. Uh, I was so prepared to come in with, with a, I had a couple of good raves, but moments before we began our conversation, I read some reports about how the head of the TSA uh, announced that we are seeing a record number of passengers this year bringing guns to U.S. airports. We're going to break the record this year, last year, uh, breaking last year's record. Uh, 
The number one response when they're caught with guns at airports is, oh, I forgot it was there, which is just so hard to believe. 86% of these uh, cases, the firearm is loaded. Not only is it dangerous, not only can someone get hurt, get killed, it could wreak havoc if there was an accidental discharge on an airplane, but could create widespread panic in an airport generally. Um, don't bring guns to airports, people. You know you're not allowed to. If you don't bring loaded guns to airports, and if you're going to come up with a better excuse than I forgot it was there. Okay, well, I'm going to lift this up and rave today uh, about Lizzo. Um, what a moment at the People's Choice Awards the other night. She was receiving the People's Champion Award, which she said she had mixed feelings about initially because she said if she's the People's Champ, she doesn't need a trophy. Listen to this. I'm here tonight because to be an icon isn't about how long you've had your platform. Being an icon is what you do with that platform. And... <laughs> And ever since the beginning of my career, I've used my platform to amplify marginalized voices. And to drive that point home, she brought 17 activists out onto the stage with her and introduced them all one by one. They included women who fight for trans rights, for access to abortion, for access to clean water in Flint, Michigan, also those who fight against police violence. The list just went on and on. And among those who praised Lizzo for this was Stevie Nicks, who said the moment was stunning. Everyone heard you, she told Lizzo. And uh, Stevie Nicks thanked Lizzo, whom she called a flute player, singer, songwriter, future politician, question mark. All right, you are listening to Left, Right, and Center during KCRW's season of giving back. And we should say that KCRW and shows like Left, Right, and Center are funded by you, our listeners. That's right. We rely on the public for most of our consistent form of support. So if you like what you hear and what we're doing here, please make a donation today by going to kcrw.com slash give. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Sarah Isger, Moa Lathy, also Stephen Fowler from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. We appreciate you joining us and hope you come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 